Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, February the 22nd, and very much a themed issue this week of the Lancet dated February the 23rd to the 29th. The topic, human resources for health, ahead of an international meeting being held by the Global Health Workforce Alliance coming up in Kampala, Uganda in early March. This meeting will aim to galvanise the international community to address the deep inequities that exist in human resources for health. Dr. Francis Amazwa is Executive Director of the Global Health Workforce Alliance and also the author of a comment in this week's issue. Earlier, he spoke to my colleague, Dr. Rona MacDonald. The Global Health Workforce Alliance was formally launched in May of 2006 and its main mandate is to bring around a common platform, a common vision on how to address the global health workforce crisis, to identify and to cause the implementation of solutions to this crisis. And you're convening the first ever global forum on human resources for health. That's at the beginning of March in Kampala. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that is correct. So this will be the first ever global forum where all stakeholders who are interested and committed to improving and exploring solutions to providing every person everywhere in the world with a skilled and motivated health worker. And it will have three main objectives. The first one is to improve our knowledge of the subject, what works, why does it work, what does not work, why does it not work, and then two, to build networks, to get to know each other, who is doing which part of the, the work in health workforce issues so that we can then communicate with, with each other as we go back home and be able to support each other in moving forward the right solutions to the problem. And the third one, the third objective, we intend to launch a global action plan which will identify key steps which countries need to take, which the international community needs to take, and which regional groups need to take in order to resolve the crisis. Now, can we talk a bit more about that? Because the the scale and the depth of the problem is so huge, and that's been outlined in this week's issue of The Lancet, where we cover many of the different issues involved. So obviously it needs to be a a kind of multi-pronged approach for the solution. So what sort of things will you be discussing, and how will you be able to hold people accountable? Because obviously this is something that's been going on for a while, and if we're really serious about tackling it, this action plan needs to have some teeth. Absolutely, you are quite right. So the meeting will have five themes. One theme is leadership, because that is what will make the change. That's what will put teeth into the action plan. We need leadership from heads of governments. We need leadership from the professionals. We need leadership from civil society so that we can commit ourselves to making plans in every country, in the region, and give the resources that are required to respond to the to the challenge. The second one is making the best use of the human resources that already exist. Management capacity in the country, the working conditions of health workers need to be addressed. The third one is just scaling up education and training because if we are going to bridge the shortages, the only way we will get the shortages bridged by massive scale up of training and education. But not just for its own sake, but it should also be responsive to the health needs of every country. So we are looking to ask the question, what is the health worker 
of the 21st century. What skills do they need and what training do they need and how should they be deployed? And then the third one, in fact we are now on the fourth one, is the question of accountability. There have been promises everywhere by governments, by uh, civil society, but there are promises which have not been fulfilled in many cases. Take for example the African heads of state. They made a declaration in Abuja in 2001 that they would apply 15% of their national budget to the health sector to address AIDS, including the health workforce issues. Very few countries have got there. The developed countries in Monterey, the same year, they promised to provide 0.5% of their national GDPs to development assistance, overseas development assistance. Very few countries have done that. There have been promises in the Paris Declaration to harmonize aid, to make aid more uh, effective. But again, if you monitor all those, there are still gaps in the commitment and implementation of those uh, declarations. It is true the health uh, expenditure globally has gone up, but not yet to the levels which will address this challenge. And can I ask you quite a controversial question in, in a very hotly debated area about active recruitment of health workers from resource-poor countries to richer countries. And there's been so many ethical recruitment codes that are basically, you know, broken a lot of the time. Will the conference be addressing this issue or will it be more on local solutions that you're focusing on? It is one of the thematic tracks which will be addressed in the conference under the title of migration, the competing uh, challenges of retaining health workers in countries and responding to some of their human rights to live and work in whichever parts of the world they would want to work. And to address this, the Global Health Workforce Alliance has got a working group which has been looking around this topic over the last 12 months with a view to developing a code of best practice in health worker, in international health worker migration. It will address that question which you have raised of uh, active recruitment by developed countries from developing countries. And there are some of these codes out there already but they are facing challenges. But we hope that by the time we have discussed uh, these uh, principles, which are now in an advanced stage at the forum, we will understand each other better on how we address this. The European WHO region has convened a special meeting while we are in Kampala so that the European Union can start to dialogue with southern countries in Asia and Africa over this topic. So it will be one of the very lively consultations and discussions which will be taking place in Kampala. And finally, can you just tell us about what happens next, like after the forum, when hopefully you'll have produced this global action plan that's been much anticipated, what happens then? How are you going to take forward the action plan and how are you going to get all the leaders that you were talking about before to buy into it and how are you going to hold them all to account? Because we don't want this to be just yet another set of recommendations that's ignored. You know, obviously we want action to be taken here. So what are the next steps? This is going to be the next focus of the Global Health Workforce Alliance in the coming 10 years. Up to now, we have uh, focused on uh, studying, getting more knowledge, and now in Kampala, for the first time, we will bring stakeholders together to get a common vision and galvanize a movement. So the Global Health Workforce Alliance will then 
take forward the action plan and convert it into operational recommendations to countries, to regions, and the international community. We will be meeting every two years from now on, and before the meeting, the biennial meeting, we will carry out what is called a status report, a health, global health workforce status report, and that's the report which we will take to the ensuing uh, uh, meetings with following Kampala and in there we will go country by country, we will go organization by organization to see what they have done to carry forward the recommendations. And we also hope that other streams of work, like for example the G8, we are engaged with them. We hope that they, their own resolutions in Japan will make it possible for additional resources to be made available for better behavior or from all stakeholders towards addressing this challenge, which truly, truly is going to be a big feature during a lot of this century. Dr. Amazwa is also the subject of a profile in this week's issue. In research, we publish an article relating to human resources and health, which concludes that, quite simply, we need more research about human resources in the poorer countries of the world to enable policymakers to make the right kind of decisions. Here's Dr. Mickey Chopra from the Medical Research Council in Johannesburg, South Africa. We did a review of the literature, and in particular, we looked for systematic reviews of evidence. And we tried to look for systematic reviews in the field of um, human resources for health. We also commissioned two systematic reviews looking at lay health workers and the impact of them, and another one looking at retention in rural areas and how to encourage um, better balance of um, health workers between rural and urban areas. And in summary, what we found was that there are some areas in human resources for health which are, well, there is some good evidence and a, and a reasonable evidence base, um, but there are large um, policy areas around um, human resources for health in which the policy base is very thin. We also publish an important health policy article about salaries and incomes among health workers in sub-Saharan Africa. Here's Rona again, talking to one of the authors of the paper, Sarah Bennett from the World Health Organization. I think that we were interested in, in contributing this paper because we all felt that salaries and incomes of health workers in sub-Saharan Africa was such a critical issue in terms of retaining and motivating health workers. And our sense was that there was really very little evidence about what health workers get paid in the sub-Saharan African context. And, you know, having searched both through databases and through the existing literature, that really appears to be the case. We came up with, you know, really a, a very limited amount of information on, on the topic. The paper is actually based upon a number of surveys conducted um, primarily in Burkina Faso, Ghana, Nigeria, and Zambia. And the surveys were conducted for different reasons, but they were all based upon interviews with different cadres of, of health workers in those contexts. In terms of you know, what came out of the, the evidence that we were able to pull together, it's very clear that over the past you know, three decades, there has been a continuous decline in salaries of, for health workers in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. To a certain extent, more recently, a number of governments have tried to compensate that for that by providing additional allowances and incentives, particularly for more senior cadres, particularly for doctors. And that has enabled a certain degree of decompression of the salary scale. I guess the central conundrum that we came up with really was that um, by the standards of incomes in, in the countries we were looking at, doctors and even nurses command quite high salary scales. 
but when you compare it to um, salaries for doctors and nurses in the West, it's clearly, you know, very, very small compared to salaries in the UK, for example. And there's also some sort of overarching implications as well, isn't there? You picked up on the IMF restrictive policies as well. Well, there have been a number of studies recently that have looked at um, IMF policies, particularly around public spending caps and wage ceilings. And there does seem to be some evidence that um, those kind of policies that have been put in place by ministries of finance um, and often with the support of the international financial institutions have been one of the things sort of hindering greater pay for, for health workers and the retention of larger numbers of health workers in sub-Saharan Africa. Your paper focuses on a really important but a a very neglected issue, and so you come up with some recommendations at the end. I think that the first thing that came out, and which we sort of started by talking about a little bit, was just the lack of data on this issue. Given how central the issue of salaries is to so many aspects of the debate about the health workforce crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, we think that really there is a need to focus on getting better, more reliable data about what's going on in in labor markets for health workers in sub-Saharan Africa. I think the other things that we highlight as being important things to look at are particularly around the appropriate skills mix and allocation of tasks across different cadres of health workers. I mean, the paper highlights, you know, how expensive doctors are compared to nurses and then compared to other cadres as well. And that really should be taken into account when you're thinking about what kind of mix of of staffing is appropriate. And finally for the podcast, an interestingly titled viewpoint, should active recruitment of health workers from sub-Saharan Africa be viewed as a crime? Here's one of the authors, Dr. Ed Mills, from the British Columbia School of Excellence in HIV Research in Vancouver, Canada. What I think is pretty obvious by the the title of the uh, viewpoint, should the active recruitment of health workers from uh, sub-Saharan Africa be considered a crime? This is a stronger viewpoint than most people put forward. Many believe that the issue of recruitment is an ethical issue for further documentation, for further consensus agreements and academic argument. And as a result, there's really been a lack of change on the issue of migration. We see it, in fact, is even increasing. In many Southern African countries, it's actually gotten to the point far beyond an ethical issue, but to the point of a state of emergency. We're seeing health workers who have to look after as many as 300 patients in a day. We're seeing uh, overcrowded hospital beds, overcrowded hospital rooms. People are lined up for days on end to access care. And so this has gone way beyond being an issue of ethics. These countries have had to deal with the issue themselves and are doing such strategies as training uh, health workers to a lower standard of care to meet the requirements, but also to avoid them being recruited from outside agencies. So the issue here is less about the actual intent of hospitals and agencies from the West and what they are anticipating doing in these countries, but the fact that they have a blatant disregard for what's foreseeable, and it's a foreseeable dire consequence there. It's clear that the agencies aren't covering up what their actions are, but there's a reckless behavior going on whereby the agencies are well aware that reduced health staff results in reduced health for the population. When you say that it should be considered a crime, what exactly do you mean? Well, only a court can determine what is, in fact, a crime or not. We're proposing here that the foresight that the active recruitment of these health workers and the enticement of these health workers away from communities is going to result in dire consequences and has such a negative outcome that is foreseeable and systematic 
that we should consider it a crime. As I say, it's only a court that can determine what is indeed a crime, and so we can hope that an African nation would take it upon itself to move forward with possible charges against such organisation. But we have all these ethical guidelines, including that from the World Medical Association, um, that are supposed to stop this sort of thing, this act of recruitment from happening. So where do they fit into this? That's right. There's many, many ethical guidelines and consensus statements on the ethical recruitment or the equitable recruitment of healthcare workers. In some circumstances, countries have issued statements that they're no longer going to permit hospitals to go and actively recruit. Unfortunately, it's the private industry that is in fact doing the majority of the recruiting for countries such as Australia, Canada, UK, and US. There are certainly Middle Eastern countries that continue to recruit just for their hospitals and by the hospitals. But as with many guidelines, these are not legally binding. They are just guidelines and and little attention is paid with regards to enforcing them. It's unfortunate, but efforts to enforce these guidelines don't happen regularly, despite the pleas of African ministers of health and statements from international figures. And you actually name some of these agencies, recruitment agencies, in your article. That's right, we do. And I think we've only named a, a mere fraction of the actual numbers of companies that go and actively recruit. So one of the uh, corporations that we have mentioned is is the largest chain of uh, pharmacies in Canada, Shoppers Drug Mart, that recently went to South Africa to recruit pharmacists and was met with protests from agencies such as the Treatment Action Campaign and student groups around the world. And we're hoping that the message is getting out there that such behavior is no longer acceptable from international agencies and that civil society is willing to stand up against them. You also mention another um, quite contentious topic in your viewpoint about um, compensating countries. For example, you report that Ghana alone has lost about £35 million pounds of training investment in health professionals to the UK and you suggest that um, richer countries should at least pay back what they're saving in their own training costs to developing countries. So I know this has been um, put forward as a possible solution before but do you think this might actually work in practice? I do think it would work in practice. Uh, There's a clear need for Western benefiting countries to assist medical education in southern Africa. They could assist by funding for example education better salaries for health workers, access to decent laboratory facilities, debt reduction. I mean, considering the tremendous savings by countries such as the UK, Australia, USA, Canada, that they are making and taking already qualified workers, the establishment of educational placements in African schools and perhaps even new schools are marginal compared to the savings that they've already made. And finally, Ed, something that keeps coming up in this subject is human rights and the rights of you know, health workers to have a better life in a different country um, versus the rights of the population to have access to health care. So what do you have to say about that? The argument consistently put forward is that health workers have a right to migrate, and indeed they do. The same can be said for plumbers, farmers and tailors, etc., but no such systematic efforts depleting the workforce so profoundly have such negative impact on community health as the recruitment of health workers. One can certainly understand why a health worker would wish to improve the quality of their own and their family's lives and perhaps the quality of their own education. But that's not really the issue. The issue is the active enticement to leave by these agencies and hospitals to fill positions here in North America or in Western Europe. How can a health worker seeing hundreds of patients a day be expected to reject consistent offers of lucrative employment at eight to ten times their own salary? Dr. Ed Mills. And do look out for many other items in this week's issue relating to health and human resources, including a three-part essay focus. 
Many thanks for listening. See you next week.